have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of James. The book of James. We finished up chapter one last week in this series, Roots, and, and we uh, are going to be diving into chapter two, but we're actually not going to start right out of the, the gate in chapter two. We're going to go down a little bit. And, and to set the stage this morning, excuse me, uh, to set the stage, I want to start out by telling us a brief story. Very brief story. Uh, when I was in middle school, uh, well, elementary school and middle school, I had uh, a very good friend. His name was Stefan. Stefan uh, came from um, a, um, a country in South America. Uh, he was adopted by a, a family who was unable to have children. And, and Stefan came and he um, immediately became uh, one of the people in my friend groups. Um, his family attended our church when I was a child uh, and into my teen years. And when we were in middle school, Stefan, um, Stefan's dad was an engineer. And he oftentimes had to travel overseas for his job. And uh, one time, Stefan's dad um, had to go to Singapore uh, for, uh, for a business trip. And while he was there, he was walking to uh, his next business meeting when he saw a man who was selling Rolex watches out of a trench coat on the side of the road. And so Stefan's dad decided that he was going to go and check it out, and he thought that it would be a really neat gift to give to Stefan, his only child and only son, even though he knew the Rolex watches were fake. And so the story goes on that Stefan's dad goes, and he begins to haggle with this, this street hustler on the side of the road, selling these Rolex watches out of his trench coat. And the price started out at $5,000 uh, American dollars for this fake Rolex watch. And over some, some time back and forth, Stefan's dad was able to get that, the price of that fake Rolex watch all the way down to 20 American dollars. The greatest deal of the day, 99.6% off, and only for Stefan's dad. Now, he returns home from Singapore, and he gives Stefan this watch, and he explains to him that this watch, though it says Rolex, is a fake. But that didn't stop Stefan from coming to school the very next day and trying to convince our friend circle that he had a genuine eat-your-heart-out Rolex watch that his dad brought for him. Now, with, with that story in mind, uh, please turn with me to James chapter 2 if you're not already there. James chapter 2. And we're going to pick up in verse 14 here in just a moment. In verse 14 in just a moment. Now, we, we today are probably going to tackle one of the most significant and controversial passages in all of the New Testament. Uh, this passage or portion of Scripture is going to stretch our theology today. It's going to stretch our ability to understand how the Bible fits together, and it's going to stretch how we live our life every single day. There are very few passages of scripture, in my opinion, that would impact all three of these areas like the one that we're going to study today. Now, I don't want, and I've asked a few people to be praying for me throughout the week, and I've asked our prayer team to be praying for me today as we begin to walk through this portion of scripture, because the last thing that I want to do is to cast doubt into the heart of a genuine believer of Jesus Christ. It's the last thing that I want to do. This passage is a warning passage, and it addresses a particular attitude that someone inside the church might have. But on the flip side of that, I do not want to, and have been praying all week, about not giving security to a person who still needs Jesus Christ. It's always possible, uh, statistically speaking, in a group this size, it is always possible that there is someone here this morning who is not a genuine believer of Jesus Christ, uh, but they think that they are. Now, I, in my humanness, am not wise enough to navigate that without the Lord's leading. I'm not. Uh, but also, the person, if that is you here today, you need to not only listen, but also obey what Scripture says to do. And refusing for us, to, re to refusing to follow the Bible in our practice is like a person who looks intently in the mirror and then walks away and forget, forgets what he looks like. We talked about that last week at the end of James chapter 1. 
So God makes it very clear to us in Scripture that when we hear biblical truth on Sunday, it must influence our Monday morning. It must influence our Tuesday lunch meeting. It must influence our Wednesday evening when we go to our kids' sporting event. It must, it must affect and impact our Thursday date with our spouse. It must affect how we go to work on Friday and how we spend our Saturday preparing to come back to church on Sunday to hear biblical truth again. And we should not ever look at the Christian life like our hell insurance is properly covered, so off we go. You know, God is, is very much concerned that there are some individuals who believe that they are followers of Christ and that they're wrong about it. He's very concerned. So with that being said, please look at verse number 14. James 2, 14 starts out by saying this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well, but even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Then the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. In verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also is faith apart from works is dead. Now I want us to consider this morning three truths that will help us grow in living out our faith. Will help us grow in living out our faith. You know, sometimes uh, I, I have found in, in all of my years of studying the scripture that sometimes the biblical authors will write in order to teach something that they believe is missing from the church's worldview. Like there is something that they do not know or understand, and so the writer wants to make it really clear for the church. But on the other side of that, sometimes the biblical authors want to write in order to address a problem that is already present inside the church, and that's what we have here. And we heard about it a little bit earlier in the first chapter. I want to read to you verse 21 uh, through 25. It says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Chapter 1, James explains that a person needed to receive the word of God because that is how a person is saved. But go back now to verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James begins to address the tongue and several concerns that involve true religion. But then James kicks off chapter 2, and the portion that we're not going to be covering in this series is the concern for partiality or favoritism in the first 13 verses of chapter 2. I have a question for us this morning, church. Is it fair to say, we are in week 4 of this series, we've studied a lot of this book, and I know we've only been in one chapter and we're diving into the second, but is it fair to say that James is concerned that our beliefs and our behavior are consistent? 
Would it be fair to say that? Maybe a fair assessment of what we've seen so far. I think what we're seeing going on in Scripture, and I think what we have going on a lot in our culture, is a movement of what we in Christian circles would call easy believism. Easy believism, I'm going to explain before you panic, and you're like, what does that mean? Easy believism states that once you have stated that you believe in Jesus Christ, you no longer have to live a life that is committed to following his truth. Just because you said, I believe, that's what easy believism is. We see it rampant, not only here in the Bible, but we see it rampant in our culture. There are churches today that say all you got to do is just believe in Jesus Christ. You don't have to change, and you're going to be on your way to heaven. That's not anywhere near what the Bible teaches. Nowhere near the Bible and what it teaches. Easy believism is, is a detriment to our culture. It's a detriment to the Bible and to the truth of God's word. In fact, easy believism is the, is the way in which we go to Jesus like we would an insurance agent. That's exactly what it is. We go to Jesus, we write a policy, and then off we go to live our lives. And James wants to address this thing head on. And so for us this morning, the first thing, the way that we grow in living out our faith, church, is by ensuring that our faith is saving faith rather than spurious faith or fake faith. We have to ensure that we have a saving faith rather than a spurious faith. You know, it's difficult in this portion of Scripture to really miss James's concern for, for fake faith or spurious faith. In verse 14, can that kind of faith save him? Verse 17, even so, faith that if it has no works is dead. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also is faith without works dead. Over and over and over, he states it. James believes that there are Christians scattered all across the world who have a faulty understanding of saving faith. And you and I, church, have the book of James. Thank God for the book of James. Amen, church? Thank God for the truth of the Bible. Amen, church? We have the Bible because it is the message that God wanted for us to hear. It was the message that we needed to hear. And the way that Jem James demonstrates the inadequacy of fake faith is to pretend like he's having a debate with three different people. Did you see it in the text? The first guy comes to him and says that his faith is adequate because he pronounces blessings. He says, go in peace, be warm and filled to the one who is needy. Now, I studied probably no less than a dozen commenta uh, commentaries this week preparing for this message. And that phrase, go in peace, be warm and filled, is what many commentators compare to the phrase, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you. And so the first person steps onto the scene to argue with James, and he says, well, listen, my faith is adequate because I pronounce the blessing of the Lord over people. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you, but there's something missing here. Action. There's something missing in action. Saving faith, church, makes a difference in the life of a believer. I could almost hear the sarcasm in James' voice when he's like, dude, you've got to be kidding me. You, you look at verse number 15, and he says, well, what about the brother or the sister who is without clothing and in need of daily food? What about them? And I'm not talking about, and I don't believe, uh, James is talking about the person who just missed one meal. He's talking about the person who, who has such a small daily consumption that they're barely surviving. It's that person who needs help. It's the person who's saying, James, I need something from you so that I can continue to live. And James's argument is this, the faith that stops that may the Lord bless you, when the person needs clothing, when the person needs food, is not a saving faith in Jesus Christ. The faith that stops that may the Lord bless you. Now, I just want to take a moment because I, I don't, and I apologize for this, but I don't do this often enough. Um, there are 
a lot of people who serve and who give here at the well. And I want to personally thank you as your pastor because the serving that you do week in and week out in whatever capacity it is, the, the money that you give is what helps us to fulfill God's mission here in and through our church. And so will you guys give it up for the people who give and serve? Because I will have to tell you, in, in 14 and a half years of ministry, one of the most challenging parts of my job is meeting with people who have a need for money. That's one of the most challenging parts of my job, to sit down with somebody or to have a telephone call where somebody is, is telling me that they don't have money for this or this or this or this. And it's heart-wrenching the number of calls that we receive on a weekly basis for this very thing. And I know uh, the Bible teaches us, and I, in fact, have taught you that we are to be good stewards of every single penny that comes in here into this ministry. And we also know when we study scripture that the Bible says that if you will not work, then you shall not eat. Now, that's a really tough thing to say in church. It's even a tougher pill to swallow uh, for those of you who have ever had to ask for money. But you know that the Bible the Bible tells us that if we're being lazy, then giving you a meal increases your own level of foolishness. That's a scary thought to, to really think about. But on the other side, we then come to this portion of Scripture in James chapter 2. And we as a church want to seek to put this portion of Scripture into practice for who we are. Why? Because we don't believe in just saying, may the Lord bless you. We want to be a church that puts on the hands and feet of Jesus and reaches out to the poor and needy in our community. We want to be able to connect with those who are lost and hurting. We want to bring hope to hopeless people. Why? Because we believe that's the best reflection of a life that's been changed and consecrated by Jesus Christ. Amen, church? We need to ask ourselves the question individually, have I been so changed by Jesus Christ that I'm willing to give to the poor and needy? Do I have a heart for those who are lost and broken and hurting? Saving faith, church, makes a difference. Saving faith makes a difference. The scary thing is, church, is that if, if, if your faith is not finding expressions that make a difference by the power of the Holy Spirit, if, if it's not, you may be sitting in here this morning, you may be watching online, you may be in the balcony being convicted by God that you might be pretending to be a follower. And I, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there, church. This sermon is one, one of the most difficult sermons to write in the last 18 or 19 months because James doesn't sugarcoat anything. Nothing at all. So real quick, kind of commercial break here. How many of you have actually been reading through the book of James every week like I challenged you guys to? Awesome. If you have not, you can still start because we're going to be here for a while. We're going to be in the book of James for a while, so you can start right now. Why, why, church, we want the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the reading of God's word so that we can be changed into the greater image of Jesus Christ to the people around us. Saving faith makes a difference in one's life. But then we have another, another person who steps onto the scene uh, with a rebuttal for James. And he says this. He says, well, I have faith, or you have faith and I have works. You have faith and I have works. He's saying I'm good with Jesus because you and I are the same. We are the same, this guy says. The problem here, though, with the second argument is that this person has a faulty understanding. A faulty understanding. It's not just a matter of emphasizing different things here in Scripture. The objector says we are all the same, so just relax. Anyone ever have a conversation like that in their life? Or you're having an argument or a discussion with somebody, and they're like, we're all the same. We're all, like, my view is the same as yours. I'm just looking at it from a different angle. Anybody ever have that before? This is what's going on here. The objector is saying, James, you're getting all wound up over nothing. We're just, we're just emphasizing and describing the exact same thing. You have faith, I have works. And I'm looking at saving faith from one direction and the objectors looking at it from another is what's going on. 
And so James's response, classic James, uh, I laugh at times because uh, I, I realize that the Lord has a sense of humor at times in Scripture. And so James goes, well, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by my works. James is saying, what you say is not the same as how I live. There are a lot of people, church, would you agree with me that there are a lot of people in this world that do good things? Would you agree with that? There are a lot of people who help other people. Would you agree with that? But guess what? A lot of those good people that do good things, a lot of those people that help other things, that does not make you a follower of Jesus Christ. It does not. A pastor friend of mine once told me that there are going to be a lot of people who prayed a sinner's prayer. There are going to be a lot of people who were baptized, a lot of people who served in church that will end up in hell because they weren't truly following Christ. That was like a knife in the heart thinking about all of the things that you've taught and said and the people you've invested in. But there are people who say in this world that they have faith, but they do not have works that follow it to prove that they have a faith that's been saved through Jesus Christ. And church this morning, Christian friend here today, James's point is super powerful. He is asserting that faith and works go together. If a person does not have works, then neither do they have faith. Then neither do they have faith. You know, I remember that um, several years ago before our church opened up its restoration ministry, uh, we had a, a residential program for men and women um, in our church. Men and women who were struggling with various different addictions. And we had a building for men and a building for women who would come through this program and before we launched that program, we had gone to another church, uh, probably about an hour or so away from where our church was in Florida, and we went there on purpose to, um, to see what they were doing. How did they operate this ministry um, on such uh, the scale in which they did? And I remember sitting down with the director over that ministry, and he, um, almost with a distraught look on his face, um, he sat down with us, and he said that 80% of the men and women that came through their ministry had a fake faith. 80%. That is an astronomical number because this church had reached thousands of people. They've, they walked with thousands of men and women and families as they, their parents and spouses were dealing with addictions to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography, I mean, you name it, to pills, to food. They were walking with thousands of different people. 80% of the people who came through their ministry, uh, they had a fake faith. And I, I was able to meet with one of the gentlemen who had just finished the program. Just finished the program, and I remember some of the things that he said to me, but before I left, um, he sat down and he shared with me a part of his testimony, and this is what he said. He said, before coming to restoration, I knew that I had issues. I struggled with substance abuse, and I struggled covering up my sin for years and years. He said, I was raised in church. Every time the doors were open, I was there. In fact, my father was a pastor for 30 years. And my mom was the head of the Christian school. I thought that I knew Christ until I came to restoration. And at the end of my first week in the program, God made it very clear through my trials and difficulty that I didn't truly know Jesus Christ. He said, I had no power in and of myself to live in the way that God commanded me to live. And he said, through those trials, God brought me to a place and a point of recognizing my false profession of faith. And I truly met Jesus Christ through the saving knowledge of grace. And he said, and my life has been radically and forever changed. And I'm like, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for situations just like that. And that was exactly why uh, we wanted to be involved in that type of ministry. That is, do you know here in Ionia alone, our addiction uh, numbers have increased by nearly 37% since the pandemic hit in 2020. 
37%. Do you guys know how small Ionia is in numbers compared to other cities that surround us? Greenville, um, uh, Cedar Springs, Rockford. Our numbers are very small in comparison. And they're saying that addiction problems have increased 37% in our area. That's astronomical for this. And we have a church currently who has an addiction recovery program. And like I've been telling people for the longest of time since I've been here, our church does not need to open up another addiction recovery program to compete with another local church who's already doing it well. Why can't we just partner with that church? Why can't we just help that church? Why do we always have to compete? It's not about the wells agenda. This is about furthering God's kingdom here in our community. Amen, church? I pray day in and day out that testimonies just like that will be an encouragement to other people who are struggling with the exact same things. But church, one of the ways that we test our faith is whether the appropriate works go with it. Whether the appropriate works go with it. You know, it's, it's at this point in, in Scripture that the third objector enters the picture. And to me, this is one of the scariest ones out of the three. The first one, may the Lord bless you, was not good enough. And neither was I have faith, or you have faith and I have works. But then the third one comes in and he says, well, I believe that God is one. I believe that God is one. So what is James going to do with that? What is he going to do with a third objector who says that he believes that, that God is the only true God? But unfortunately, we come to a portion of Scripture here where there's an inadequate commitment that's occurring. James says something quite scary. In fact, look back with me to verse number 19. He says, you believe that God is one and you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. Whoa, even the demons believe and shudder. James's response is saying that believing like the demons is not impressive. It's exactly what he just said. At first sight, that sounds impressive, right? The person believes that God is one. And I realize that some versions of the Bible, and there may be some of you with those versions that say there is one God. But the reason the writers in the original Greek wrote that God is one was to emphasize and reference one of the most sacred portions of Scripture from the Old Testament, the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says here, and that verse is going to hit the screen for you, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. It came from the Shema. It was the most sacred of texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament church. It was the portion of scripture that they would pray not just once a day, but twice. Every moment they would walk from their home and every moment they would come back in, that would be upon their lips. And let me tell you, church, this is crazy. Um, absolutely, absolutely insane. At this portion of time in the Bible, when the Shema really became the most sacred of text, it had nothing to do with legalism. It had nothing to do with being a Pharisee, just knowing they would recite over and over and over scripture. Why? So that God's truth was always upon their lips. Show it, it showed their dedication to truth. It showed that they loved and always wanted to learn and be led by truth. And so they constantly were reminding themselves of this here. That's where that word Shema comes from. It means to listen, intently listen to something. It says the Lord our God, the Lord is one church believing believing this is surely enough to demonstrate saving faith don't you think like have you noticed up to this point that James is not one of the warm fuzzy guys of the Bible he's just not and James is saying well it's good that you believe that God is one but right theology at that level does not guarantee saving faith because the demons have that understanding. Like, ouch. 
the demons have that same understanding. And then James goes on to say that the practical theology of that objector is worse than the demons. Why? Because both believe that God is one, but the demons actually did something about it. It says that they shuddered. They responded to God being one, and really for good reason. If we go back to the Gospels and look at Matthew chapter 8, uh, the Gospel writer records the time when, when Christ comes onto the scene. Now, how many of you know the maniac of Gadara? The man who was possessed that encounters Christ. So Matthew records that Christ actually encountered two men who were both possessed by demons. And they were coming out of the tomb and they were, they were extremely violent. They wouldn't let anyone pass by. And Christ comes out and the demons cry out to Jesus Christ saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? They responded to the very presence of Jesus Christ. And James is sitting here saying, The iron is that the demon's faith resulted in action and the one who says just because I believe doesn't respond. Man, talk about an ouch moment. The demons believe what you believe and they respond. The demons. How is it possible to think and believe that simply saying God is one is sufficient for saving faith? How is it possible? It reminded me as I was studying this portion of scripture, I was reminded of what Jesus said as he began to conclude the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. When he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who, will you pull that verse up? I believe it's there on the screen, or it should be on the screen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But look at that second phrase. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And Jesus goes on to say that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And what does Jesus say to them? He declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Your commitment, my commitment, our commitment to Jesus must make a difference in what we do. It must make a difference. Saving faith is always lived out in our actions. And when there is not enough evidence, church, when there is not enough evidence to convict us, then are we truly saved at all? When there's not enough evidence, there was a young lady in our youth ministry, um, pastor's kid, grew up in the church, um, more or less was always at church because her dad was a pastor. Every time there was an event, every time there was an activity, every time there was something going on, this young lady was there. I remember her coming into our youth ministry when she uh, reached the sixth grade, and I remember immediately she wanted to do all of the things. She wanted to serve, she wanted to sing up front with our youth praise team, she wanted to go to every event, wanted to be a part of everything, and, and I always thought for just a moment there was something odd. It was almost like overly aggressive involvement in ministry. And I said, well, I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe that's just how their family is. I grew up in a family that was always involved in ministry. And I remember she, she joined, uh, we put something out and began to do a student leadership team in our youth ministry. And we wanted to encourage students to step up and take ownership of their youth ministry and to begin to lead their peers, especially the ones that were younger. And immediately she jumped on board. I want to be a student leader. She would then step up uh, during worship time and, and our students would have memorized portions of scripture and, and in the middle of a song they would come out and they would, they would eloquently share scripture without having their Bible. And it was beautiful. These students that took time to, to, memorize, to memorize 5, 10, 15, 20 verses of Scripture and explain why it meant something to them. And every time she was the first in line, always, she went to church camp. She was the first name on the list. Church camp would happen and they would ask for leaders. Boom, her hand would go straight up as soon as we would get there. 
And I remember one year at church camp, they were challenged to live a life that actually followed with what they believed. They were challenged to not be fake with what they said and what they did. And I remember we came off of camp with the quote-unquote camp high. We'd seen 11 students come to know Jesus Christ, and all 11 of them came back and got baptized two weeks later in our church. It was amazing. But I remember this one young lady, and we were, we were talking about this very portion of Scripture one night. We're in a youth group Thursday night. It's about 7.15. In the middle of the sermon, she stands up. Right in the middle of the sermon, And we're like preaching through a series on living selfless faith. And this young lady gets up and she goes, I'm a fake. Right in the middle of the service. Initially in my flesh, I wanted to correct her. Like you're interrupting the word of God. Sit down, woman. That's, just listen, that's where I was at. Like I was very frustrated. But she goes, I'm a fake. I've, I've been a phony for three years in this youth ministry. I wanted everybody to believe that because I grew up in church, I wanted everybody to think good of my mom and dad because he's a pastor. I had to do all the things because I wanted people to look at me and think, she's got it. She's the example. And she goes, I had no love for Jesus Christ. I had love for myself, and I wanted everybody to look at me. She goes, can someone go with me in the other room and pray? Because I need need Christ in my life. And I remember one of our female leaders got up so fast, they almost tripped over themselves. And they take her in the other room, And over the next three years that she was in our youth ministry, she was a completely different person. Was she still involved? Yeah. Was she still plugged in? Was she still a part of the worship team? Was she still a part of student leadership? Did she still go to camp? Yeah. But she was a completely different individual. Her life mimicked a life of joy. She had the joy of salvation upon her, and that young lady led several of her peers to Christ following that day. She was one of the students that I will never forget, one student that I believe made one of the greatest impacts in our youth ministry, and today she's a missionary overseas in Africa. Missionary overseas in Africa being used by God as a single woman. She devoted her life to Christ she said, I don't, I don't want to worry and have to worry about ma- marriage or children. God has called me to devote my life to his word. And that's what she does. She's been threatened. She's been arrested. She's been beaten. And she continues to press in to the Lord. I stand here today. And if I look at that young lady, whenever I have the opportunity to see her face to face again, I want to look her in the eyes and be like, your example was one of saving faith. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's going to get called to the mission field. I'm not saying, please don't hear, divorce your spouse and go do the work of the Lord. That's not what I said, okay? I know some of you may be like, you don't know my spouse. Um, I'm not saying give up the hopes and, and the dreams of having a spouse or having children. But what I'm saying is there is something radical that happens in the life of the one who has truly been saved by Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you came from a life of debauchery and now you're living in a different way or you were raised in the church and you got saved. God is still doing something radical in you. Why? Because your thinking is no longer the same about truth. You respond in acts of obedience. And the Lord included this very thing for us to be sure that our faith was saving faith, not spurious faith. He included this very thing to say that if the proof is not in the pudding, then maybe you have dirt. He included this very thing to those who by their actions show that they are not a follower of Jesus so that they would repent and come to follow Christ. And maybe there's somebody in here this morning that needs to do that same thing. Maybe there's somebody in the balcony. Maybe there's somebody online that needs to do that. 
to admit that your profession at one point in your life was not real and to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, I asked you, um, some of you, to pray for me because on the one hand, I did not want to give comfort to those who do not know Christ. And if that's you this morning, I truly and honestly have been praying and hoping that you would feel the weight of God's conviction in this place today. And on the other hand, I didn't want to discourage those of you here or cast doubt into your heart for those who are exercising saving faith. So before I move on and before we close this morning, I need to help us to understand the relationship between faith and works in the larger biblical context. I need us to understand that uh, because some people look at, for the, how many of you have been coming through our Wednesday night Bible study in Romans? Okay, a good portion of you. I know there's some that are not here. Uh, but we've, we've talked about in the book of, of Romans that man is justified apart or by faith apart from the works of the law. Like I hammered it home hard on week three of that Bible study. We talked about it. We discussed it. And then we come to James chapter two. And he says man is not justified by faith alone but also by his works. And so I've had many people uh, already here in the church that have either reached out to me in person through a phone call or through Facebook, ask, especially those who have come through the Wednesday night Bible study, and they've asked, how do you reconcile that? Because it sounds like Paul and James are contradicting each other here in Scripture. And it's the same argument that atheists take. Well, there's contradictions, and this is one of those arguments right here. Romans 328, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith, not by the works of the law. Paul said that. Then James says, we see that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how do these two things go together? How do they fit? Well, it appears, it appears to the human eye that they are contradicting each other, but in reality, they're addressing two different issues. Two completely and vastly different issues. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is addressing the concern that people can earn their salvation. If they just follow rules and do good things, then God has to accept them. And he's concerned about the person that says, as long as I stay away from the filthy five and the dirty dozen and the nasty nine, and I do plenty of good things, then God has to take me. And Paul's saying, no, a person is justified by faith alone. In fact, when he got to Ephesus and began to write the book of Ephesians with the same issue, he said this. He says, you have been saved through faith. You've been saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that they would walk in them. When you put Romans and Ephesians together, both works and, and, and books written by Paul, we get the phrase salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When you put both of them together, that's what we get. You know, Paul has no trouble, though, putting faith and works together. We, we, we are saved by faith, and then we are to do good works in response to that faith. Now, don't, don't I don't want to lose you here, but there's something here in Scripture that we must see. For those of you who came through Wednesday night Bible study, we talked about the term justification. We know it's the act in which God declares a sinner righteous, and that occurs at salvation. We talked about that. It comes when a person exercises faith in Christ. But once justified, once you have been saved, the believer lives out the good works in which they were created to do. So James, on the other hand, he's addressing the person who thinks that all they have to do is say or believe the right thing. That's it. He's addressing that person. Think about it this way. This is not going to hit the screen for you. Um, and if you want this uh, quote, then I'll give it to you later. You know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to possess an accurate theology. Okay? You guys tracking with me so far? It is a good thing for us to, to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that accurate theology also possesses you. 
It is unsatisfactory unless the word of God has completely encapsulated your life that you're responding to it in acts of obedience. James and Paul are saying exactly the same thing. Saving faith produces the right works. Saving faith produces the right works. Works are the natural outflow of the heart that has been changed. In church, I've been praying all week for those who need to trust Christ today. All of those who would not have their faith rattled. But there's one more issue that we have in the text that we have to cover before we can land the plane. There's a final, a final issue. And it's that we must follow the biblical examples that prove the genuineness of our faith in what we do. There are two examples that we were given here at the end of James. The issue is raised in the section that explains Abraham and Rahab's actions. So in, in, the, in the middle here, uh, like the meat of a sandwich, comes a very little and very significant portion of Scripture. In, in 2.24, James says, You see that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I already explained that James is using this word faith to highlight the easy believism of his day. Now, I need to help you guys to understand this a little bit. Do you know that sometimes words, um, that some words carry potentially different meanings? Do you guys know that? Like, for instance, I'll do this. Uh, we use technical words sometimes, like the word pediatrician is the, the word that we give to the guy who takes care of children, the doctor who takes care of children. And we don't use the word pediatrician in any other way. But what about this? What if I were to use the word trunk? The word trunk has multiple meanings. It could be the part on a car. It could be the base of a tree. It could be, it could be the, part, uh, the body part of an elephant. It could be the chest that I put all my family's belongings into. The word trunk has multiple meanings. But what about the word justify? What about the word justify? I mean, it could be used like Paul uses it in Romans as a judicial act. A judicial act. But that's not the only way that the word justify is used in Scripture. In fact, here, here where James talks about it, it comes from the Greek word meaning to vindicate or authenticate something. And in 1 Timothy, Paul wrote that Christ was justified in the Spirit. He was vindicated by the Spirit to be the Son of God. And Christ was proved correct to the people. And that's what James is doing here by the examples of Abraham and Rahab. He's saying that their faith was authenticated by what they did. Do you know the example of Abraham who was willing to give up the most important thing to him? Look back at verse 23 with me. It says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Do you know James used a direct quote from Genesis 15, 6 when he made that statement? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Do you want to know what's really crazy? The fact that he was, he was reckoned or received righteousness in Genesis 15 and it wasn't for six chapters before he laid Isaac on that altar. Abraham was already counted as righteous before he laid his son down to sacrifice him. And what about Rahab, the little foreign woman of Jericho? The Israelites, they come busting in after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And the very first task is to take Jericho. And so they walk around the walls of Jericho. But Jesus says that the word of the Lord is coming to fight for Israel. And it says that Rahab believed. She believed, and her response to belief was to protect the spies. She protected the spies. Our faith has to be accompanied by the works that are fitting of a Christian. It has to be. That's why James says, I will show you my faith by my works. A true gospel. The true gospel is faith that does what you learned on Sunday every other day of the week. 
And each one of us here this morning, each person online, each person in the balcony has to evaluate our commitment to doing the work that we were called to do after, the, after coming to the saving, saving knowledge of grace. And so I want to just give you a couple of tangible, tangible things and then we'll close up for today. So you may be saying like, Pastor, what, what can I do right now? What can I do? Well... A very, very, very good place to start is to be a good student of the Word. To be a good student of the Word. That means read your Bible. And I don't, don't just read to read. I'm talking about reading to apply to be changed. Be a good student of the Word. Be a good student of the Word. How about coming Wednesday night to our Bible study where we're diving deeper into Scripture? We're diving deeper. We're learning more. If you're a student or a parent of a student, attend youth ministry. Our youth ministry is there to help equip our students to become sold out believers and disciple makers in their schools and in their friend circle. So don't skip youth group. What about attending church regularly on Sundays? You want to know what the scary thing is? Is that statistics show that the average person who calls himself a Christian attends church less than twice a month. Less than twice a month. That's crazy to me. I can't understand that. I don't understand how people can say I'm a Christian and then not attend the one place that we're called to be together, not just for fellowship, but to spur each other on to a greater growth and understanding of Scripture. I don't understand. But then I would also encourage you to find ways to express the gifts that you've been given. Because each and every single person in this room has been giving giftings that are not just, not just for your own sake. They are to encourage others and to glorify God. And so if you sing, you should be coming and talking to one of us on the praise team so you can get plugged in. If you play an instrument, you should be using that gifting to glorify God here on this platform. If you love children, and I know some of you don't, so this is okay. But if you love kids, you should serve in our children's ministry. If you want, if you like computers and you like technology, you should be serving in our tech ministry upstairs. Even if it's just once a month, there are so many ways here in our church that you can get plugged in. Security, cleaning. I mean, there are multiple ways that you can get plugged in. And if you're not plugged in, you should get plugged in. Because saving faith always is followed by action, church. Saving faith is always followed by action. The Lord gave us, in my opinion, gave us this passage to help us see that there's a such thing as a fake faith. And in my opinion, a fake faith is way worse than a fake Rolex watch. Way worse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place and we, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for the challenge of scripture. And we ask, Lord, that we would be challenged to meditate upon what we have learned. That if we are here today and, and we are followers of you, Lord, that we would have a life that represents you, that works for you, that does what you have called us to do in your word. And Lord, if there are those here today who do not know you, I ask for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, to seek you, to come to you, Lord, I'm asking that you would continue to work in our church and in our lives, that you would make us uh, holy, that you would bring about great change in us, that you would use us as your vessels to impact Ionia with the gospel, that we would be a church that cares for the needy and the hopeless, that we are willing servants to do what you have called us to do. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen and amen.